Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to OCA's Asia Town Voice. We're an hour-long nonprofit program on WJCU's 88.7 FM radio. We're on here every Sunday from 7 to 8 p.m. This hour-long program provides you with an inside look at the Asian American and Pacific Islander Americans community, culture, education, and events going on in Northeast Ohio. OCA's Asia Town Voice is volunteer-based, and we hope that you, the listener, will enjoy our program and give your support to WJCU. This way we can continue to provide many voices with many choices to you. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Yin Tang, also known as DJ Bossy Lady. And on air with me is Johnny Wu, the ghost host. Mm. <laughs> and we want to welcome you to our show, and we want to share a lot of Asian culture with you for this holiday season. I'm sure many of you are running out and about, and even though we try to bring to you a lot of conversations and a lot of people to interview to show you more about Asia Town, um, we feel the best way to do it during this holiday season is to play for you some jams that we absolutely love. And on top of that, me, DJ Bussy Lady, is going to be reading to you some of my favorite Chinese fairy tales. Um, mostly because, in, in my opinion, I think uh, Johnny Wu, ghost host, can also agree with this, that a large part of the holiday season is sharing time with your family and children. And what better than to share stories with children? And a lot of these are my favorite growing up, and I hope that you guys will enjoy it. And yes, Ghost yes. Host, yes, yes, <laughs> is going to be picking out some more holiday songs for you to enjoy. Yes, so yes. we hope to catch you back here. And uh, let us know what you think of the stories on our Facebook. Um, just look up Asia Town Voice. OC is Asia Town Voice. And we will catch you next week. Dum 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 
right, ladies and gentlemen, DJ Bossy Lady here, um, also known as Yin Tang. Woo! I'll be reading to you The Four Dragons, a Chinese tale. Once upon a time, there were no rivers and lakes on earth, but only the eastern sea in which lived four dragons, the long dragon, the yellow dragon, the black dragon, and the pearl dragon. One day, the four dragons flew from the sea into the sky. They soared and dived, playing at hide-and-seek in the clouds. Come over here quickly, the pearl dragon cried out suddenly. What's up? asked the other three, looking down in the direction where the pearl dragon pointed. On earth, they saw many people putting out fruits and cakes and burning incense sticks. They were praying. A white-haired woman, kneeling on the ground with a thin boy on her back, murmured, Please send rain quickly, God of heaven, to give our children rice to eat. For there had been no rain for a long time. The crops withered, the grass turned yellow, and the fields cracked under the scorching sun. How poor the people are, said the yellow dragon, and they will die if it doesn't rain soon. The long dragon nodded. Then he suggested, let's go, and back the jade, let's go and beg the jade emperor for rain. So saying, he leaped into the clouds. The others followed closely and flew towards the heavenly palace. Being in charge of all the affairs on heaven, earth, and the sea, the jade emperor was very powerful. He was not pleased to see the dragons rushing in. Why do you come here instead of staying in the sea and behaving yourselves? He asked. The long dragon stepped forward and said, The crops on earth are withering and dying, your majesty. I beg you to send rain down quickly. All right, you go back first. I'll send some rain down tomorrow. The jade emperor pretended to agree while listening to the songs of the fairies. The four dragons responded, Thanks, your majesty. The four dragons went happily back, but ten days passed and not a drop of rain came down. The people suffered more, some eating bark, some eating grass roots, some forced to eat white clay while they ran out of the bark and the grass roots. Seeing all this, the four dragons felt very sorry, for they knew the Jade Emperor only cared about pleasure and never took the people to heart. They could only rely on themselves to relieve the people of their miseries. But how to do it? Seeing the vast sea, the long dragon said that he had an idea. What is it? Out with it quickly, the other three demanded. Look, there is not pl look, is there not plenty of water in the sea where we live? We should scoop it up and spray it towards the sky. The water will be like raindrops and come down to save the people and their crops, said the long dragon. Good idea, said the others as they clapped their hands. But, the long dragon said, after thinking a bit, we will be blamed if the jerried emperor learns of this. I will do anything to save the people, the yellow dragon said resolutely. Then let's begin. We will never regret it, said the long dragon. The black dragon and the pearl dragon were not to be outdone. They flew to the sea, scooping up water in their mouths, and they flew back into the sky, where they sprayed the water out over the earth. The four dragons flew back and forth, making the sky dark all around. Before long, the seawater came became rain pouring down from the sky. It's raining, it's raining, the crops will be saved, the people cried in leap of joy. On the ground, the wheat stalks raised their heads, and the sorghum stalks straightened up. The god of the sea discovered these events and reported to the Jade Emperor. How dare the four dragons bring rain without my permission, said the Jade Emperor. He was outraged, and ordered the heavenly generals and their troops to arrest the four dragons. Being far outnumbered, the four dragons could not defend themselves, and were soon arrested and brought back to the heavenly palace. Go and get four mountains to lay and lay upon them so that they can never escape, the Jade Emperor ordered the Mountain God. The Mountain God uses magic power to make four mountains fly, whistling through the wind from afar, and press them down upon the four dragons. Imprisoned as they were, they never regretted their actions. Determined to do good for the people forever, they turned themselves into four rivers which flowed past high mountains and deep valleys, crossing the land from the west to the east and finally emptying into the sea. And so long... And for a long time, China's four great rivers were formed. The Heilongjiang, the Black Dragon, in the far north. The Huanghe, the Yellow River in central China. The Changjiang, or Yangtze, also meaning the Long River. 
and the further south, the Zhujiang, the Pearl River. So this is a very nice story. And uh, for any of the listeners who might be of Chinese heritage, um, you'll know that the people of China sometimes refer to themselves as children of the dragons. And this is uh, part of the reason why. It's because the dragons and their, their, their bodies, their blood, fed the crops and thus treating the humans um, as their own children. So I hope you enjoy that story. Santa, tell me if you're really there Don't make me fall in love again If she won't be here next year Santa, tell me if she really cares Cause I can't give it all away If she won't be here next year Feeling Christmas all around And I'm trying to play it cool But it's hard to focus when I see you Walk across the room Let it snow is blasting out But I won't get in the mood I'm avoiding every mistletoe Until I know it's cooler That she thinks of So next Christmas I'm not alone Santa, tell me If you're in creationism and um, not to offend anybody of any particular religion but I personally really like this story because of the similarities in there that uh, well let me just read it and then we can talk about it a little bit more all right so Pangu created the world according to Chinese legend the mighty Pangu spelled P-A-N-G-U which in my opinion sounds a lot like Pangaya the mighty Pangu up from above broke through the chaos with his strength and acts to create the world as we know it it may seem that every culture has its own tale about the creation of the world and the beginnings of mankind, and China is no different. The ancient Chinese story of the beginning of the universe is replete with chaos and mythic heroes who rise above it to create order and the world as we know it. According to Chinese lore, in the beginning there was nothing in the universe but a dark, formless chaos. The mythic hero Pangu, who had been sleeping in the chaos for 18,000 years, woke up. When he realized that he was confined to this dark and chaotic environment, he decided to break out. He mightily swung his giant axe to smash through the chaos. This caused the lighter parts of the universe to rise up and become the sky, while the heavier parts sunk down and became the earth. In order to keep the sky and earth separated, Pangu stood between them and exerted himself to push up the sky. 
With each day, the sky grew higher and the earth grew wider. After another 18,000 years immersed in the nascent universe, Pangu thought his job was done and he lay down to rest. When his breath became wind and cloud, his voice became thunder. His left eye became the sun and his right eye the moon. His hair became stars in the sky and his blood became the rivers and lakes. His muscles became the fertile lands and his bones became his, the minerals. His sweat fell as rain and his fur became forests and grasslands. That is the beginning of the world. Now here's another story on Yuwa creating mankind. She is seen as the mother uh, creator. Yuwa is the goddess in ancient Chinese legend known for creating mankind and repairing the sky. It is said that Yuwa exists in the beginning of the world and created men from yellow clay. At first, she sculpted each human individually, but she found that she needed more efficient ways of making people. So instead, she dipped a rope in clay and flicked it. Then blobs of clay landed everywhere and each of those blobs became a person. But later, there was a fight between the god of water and the god of fire. When the god of water lost the fight, he smashed his head against Mount Bujo out of fury. Since the mountain was a pillar holding up the sky, the sky began to fall and caused a lot of damage. Because of that, people's lives became miserable. Nuwa was greatly concerned about her people, so she picked out colorful stones in Mount Tiantai and used them to seal the broken sky. In this way, peace and happiness returned to mankind. Now, I mean, to me, Pangu is pretty obviously... Um, another iteration of Pangaea, and the chaos could be when the continents separated. Uh, or maybe I'm just totally reading way too much into this. But either way, I think it's, um, it's a pretty interesting story. And the story about Nuwa and creating mankind, that could really mean anything. Um, I'll leave that one open to interpretation. What I really like about Nuwa in the story is about how she fixed the sky. Um, you know, this is way before any humans were believed to be on Earth, but there is a story of that giant asteroid uh, <laughs> killing all the dinosaurs. And if any of you have seen the movie The Good Dinosaur, where the asteroid missed, it's possible that the humans um, were able to figure out that through craters or just seeing lava or... I don't know, it's just somehow I'm, I'm thinking that with human imagination we could see the sky falling and is believed that this hero uh, fixed the sky by placing the replacing the pillar. Now, there are a couple different versions of Nuwa and uh, her story of fixing the sky. It was said that Earth was her garden, and in that version, it could be seen as Earth was her garden of Eden. And it said as she walked along, there were mermaids who gave her pearls, there were other creatures and mankind that gave her other jewels that they dug up from the minerals of the Earth. Um, and she would often wear these. And when the sky fell, she threw them all into a volcano to melt them, and then used the... Um, resulting conglomerate of pearls and jewels to fix the sky and that is why when the sun sets it hits it at the right angle and the sky is different colors and it also says that not only patching the sky with the jewels helps save the sky from falling here I'm thinking about Chicken Little but also said that she went into the deep ocean and found a giant tortoise and ripped off its legs and used the legs to take the place of the pillar of the of the mountain that was smashed apart and it says that it still wasn't tall enough to set the sky right as it once was and that's why every day when the sun travels across the sky it rolls across the sky because there is a tilt to the sky so those are two stories of creation i hope you enjoy them joy to the world the lord is come Let earth receive 
and nature, heaven and nature, This next story is a story I actually heard on Reading Rainbow as a child, and um, I'm wondering if you can hear my cat purring in front of me right now. <laughs> But the title of this story is called "A Boy Who Drew Cats," and it's um it's a very good story in my opinion. It might be a little bit scary for some, but I I don't really think it's completely out um, unacceptable. So I'm gonna go ahead, and if you want to share your opinions on this story, um, I would be happy to hear them. All right, and oh, by the way, this is a Japanese fairy tale. The boy who drew cats. Once there was a boy who loved to draw. His name was Joji. Joji grew up on a farm with lots of brothers and sisters. The others were a big help to their father and mother, but not Joji. He did nothing for hours but draw in the dirt with a stick. And what Joji drew was just one thing: cats. Cats, cats, and more cats. Small cats, big cats, thin cats, fat cats. Cats, 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 cats. Joji, his father told him, "You must stop drawing all these cats. How will you ever be a farmer?" "I'm sorry, father. I will try to stop." 
And he did try, but whenever Joji saw one of the farm cats go by, he forgot all about his chores and just drew another cat. Joji will never make a farmer, said the farmer sadly to his wife. Maybe he could be a priest, she told him. Why don't you take him to the temple? So the father brought Joji to the priest at the village temple, and the priest said, I will gladly teach him. From then on, Joji lived at the temple. The priest gave him lessons in reading and writing, and Joji had his own box of writing tools with a brush and an ink stick and a stone. Joji loved to make ink. He poured water into the hollow of the stone and dipped the ink stick into the water. Then he rubbed the stick on the stone and there was ink for his brush. Now, the other students worked hard at their writing, but not Joji. With his brush and rice paper, he did nothing for hours but draw. And what did Joji draw? Cats. Cats, cats, and more cats. Small cats, big cats, thin cats, and fat cats. Cats, cats, and cats. Joji, the priest told him, you must stop drawing all these cats. How will you ever be a priest? I am sorry, honorable sir, I will try to stop. And he did try, but whenever Joji saw one of the temple cats go by, he forgot all about his writing, and he drew another cat. That was bad enough. Then Joji started drawing on the folding screens of the temple. Soon there were cats on all the rice paper panels. They were everywhere. Joji, you'll never make a priest, the priest told him sadly. You'll just have to go home. Joji went to his room and packed his things, but he was afraid to go home. He knew his father would be angry. Then he remembered another temple in the village nearby. Maybe I can stay with the priest there, he thought. Joji started out walking. It was already night when he got to the other village. He climbed to the steps of the temple and knocked. There was no answer. He opened the heavy door, and it was dark inside. That's strange, said Joji. Why isn't anyone here? He lit a lamp by the door, and then he saw something that made him clap. All around the big room were folding screens with empty rice paper panels. Joji got out his writing box and made some ink. Then he dipped in his brush and started to draw. And what did Joji draw? Cats. Cats, cats, and more cats. Small cats, big cats, thin cats, fat cats. Cats, cats all around. The screen he drew on... The, the, the screen he drew on last was almost as long as the room. Joji covered it with one gigantic cat, the biggest and most beautiful cat he had ever drawn. Now Joji was tired. He started to lay down, but something about the big room bothered him. I'll find someplace smaller, he said. He found a cozy closet and settled inside. Then he slid the panel door shut and went to sleep. Late that night, Joji awoke in fright. Grrr. It sounded like a large, fierce animal in the temple. Now he knew why no one was there. He wished that he wasn't there either. He heard the large thing sniff around the room. It halted right in front of the closet. Then all at once, yowl. There was a sound of struggling and a roar of surprise and pain. Then a huge thud that shook the floor. Then a soft padding sound. Then silence. Joji lay trembling on the, in the dark. He lay there for hours, afraid to look out of the closet. At last, daylight showed through at the edge of the door, and Joji carefully slid it open and peered out. In the middle of the room lay a large monster rat, as big as a cow. It lay as if it were dead, as if something had smashed it onto the floor. Joji looked around the room. No one and nothing else was there, just the screens of the cats. Then Joji looked at the one giant cat on the large screen that stretched the length of the room. Didn't I draw the head of the cat to the left and the tail to the right? Yes, he was sure of it. But now the cat faced the other way, as if it had come down off the screen and then gone back up. The cat, said Joji. His eyes grew wide. Then he pressed his palms together and bowed to the screen. Thank you, Honorable Cat. You have saved me. For as long as I live, no one will stop me from drawing cats. When the villagers had learned that the monster rat was, when the villagers had learned that the monster rat was dead, Joji became a hero. The village priest let him live in the temple as long as he liked. But Joji did not become a priest, and he did not become a farmer. Instead, he became an artist, a great artist. 
an artist honored through the country and an artist who drew just one thing, cats. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that story, especially all the cat lovers out there. And just remember, cats are wonderful creatures. <laughs> one, two, three. Ooh. Oh, baby, give me one more chance. Show you that I love you. Won't you please let me back in your heart? Oh, darling, I was blind to let you go. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want it for my own. More than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. Baby, all I want for Christmas is you. I want you back. I want you back. I had you to myself I didn't want you around Those pretty faces Always made you stand out In the crowd But someone picked you from the bunch One glance was all it took But now it's much too late For me to take a second look. Oh baby Give me one more chance I like all 
the first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay. In fields where they lay, keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. No. This is DJ Bossy Lady, also known as Yin Tang. I wanted to share with you a couple of children's stories around this time um, in preparation for the Lunar New Year. Now, not all these uh, stories are about the Lunar New Year, but there are some stories I appreciated from my youth. And I think that even as adults, there's some things that can be gleaned from them. So the first story I'm going to read today is uh, Yeshen. It's a Cinderella story, and it's been retold and fixed by um, a couple of different authors. And there's some wonderful artwork that's done in children's books out there. But uh, this being the radio, <laughs> I'm just going to read to you the words. Okay. During the time of the Qin and the Han dynasties, a cave chief named Wu married two wives and each gave birth to baby girls. Before long, Chief Wu and one wife died, leaving one baby, Yeshen, to be reared by her stepmother. The stepmother did not like Yeshen, for she was more beautiful and kinder than her own daughter, so she treated her poorly. Yeshen was given the worst jobs, and the only friend she had was a beautiful fish with big golden eyes. Each day, the fish came out of the water onto the bank to be fed by Yeshen. Now, Yeshen had little food for herself, but she was still willing to share it with the fish. Her stepmother, hearing about the fish, disguised herself as Yeshen one day and enticed the fish from the water. 
She stabbed it with a dagger and cooked the fish for dinner. Yashin was distraught when she learned of the fish's death. As she sat crying, she heard a voice and looked up to see a wise old man wearing the coarsest of clothes and with hair hanging down over his shoulders. He told her that the bones of the fish were filled with a powerful spirit, and that when she was in serious need, she was to kneel before the bones and tell them of her heart's desires. She was warned not to waste their gifts. Yashin retrieved the bones from the trash heap and hid them in a safe place. Time passed, and the spring festival was nearing. This was a time when the young people gathered in the village to meet with one another and to find husbands and wives. Yeshin longed to go to the festival, but her stepmother wouldn't allow it because she feared that someone would pick Yeshin rather than her own daughter. The stepmother and her daughter left for the festival, leaving Yeshin behind. She, waited, or she wanted to go desperately, so she asked the bones, the fish bones, for clothes to wear to the festival. Suddenly, she found herself wearing a beautiful gown of azure blue with a cloak of kingfisher feathers draped around her shoulders. On her feet were beautiful slippers. They were woven of golden threads in a pattern of a scaled fish, and the soles were made of solid gold. When she walked, she fell lighter than air. She was warned not to lose the slippers. Yeshin arrived at the festival, and soon all were looking her way. The daughter and the stepmother moved closer to her, for they seemed to recognize this beautiful person. Seeing that she would be found out, Yeshin dashed out of the village, leaving behind one of the golden slippers. When she arrived home, she was dressed again in her rags. She spoke again to the bones, but they were now silent. Saddened, she put the one golden slipper in her bedstraw. After a time, a merchant found the lost slipper, and seeing the value in the golden slipper, sold it to a merchant who gave it to the king of the island of Tohan. Now the king wanted to find the owner of this tiny beautiful slipper. He sent his people to search the kingdom, but no one's foot would fit in the tiny gold slipper. He had the slipper placed on display in a pavilion on the side of the road where the slipper had been found, with an announcement that the shoe was to be returned to the owner. The king's men waited out of the sight, out of sight. All the women came to try on the shoe. One dark night, Yeshin slipped quietly across the pavilion, took the tiny golden slipper, and turned to leave. But the king's men rushed out and arrested her. She was taken to the king, who was furious, for he couldn't believe that anyone in rags could possibly own a golden slipper. As he looked closer at her face, he was struck by her beauty, and he noticed that she had the tiniest feet. The king and his men returned home with her, where she produced the other slipper. As she slipped on the two slippers, her rags turned into the beautiful gown and the cloak that she had worn to the festival. The king realized that she was the one for him. They married and lived happily ever after. However, the stepmother and the daughter were never allowed to visit Yeshin, and were forced to continue to live in their cave until one day they were crushed to death in a shower of flying stones. Now, um, this is slightly <laughs> different from the version that I had read. Um, the ending was not quite as morbid, but I think the, the general idea, the general lesson to be learned is you can't judge a book by its cover. Um, you know, uh, but now that we're in the age of feminism, I think it's safe to say that you can't really judge a girl just on her beauty alone. But I think for a lot of purposes, especially in these ancient fables and myths and stories, that it's so hard to really describe inner beauty to somebody who doesn't understand that a lot of times for children's sake of understanding, they describe outer beauty as a reflection of inner beauty. But at the same time, I think in a day of materialism, it's, it's too easy to forget that inner beauty is what most of these stories are, are talking about. Like, um, I can't remember where I heard the saying, but it's like, if you're healthy of mind and spirit, it'll show on your body. And I guess that's true because if you're always worried, you're going to end up like with hunched shoulders or something. I don't know. Um, I mean, there's truth behind it, but I'm just, I can't think of any great examples right now. 
So that was the Chinese Cinderella story of Yeshen, and I'm hoping um, you enjoy that. And I will be reading another one shortly. This is a story 
of the salt cellar and the fox. Long ago, there lived a port salt cellar. Each day he would rise at first light and leave his house. In his A-frame, he loaded it with salt and would go from village to village peddling until the day was done. And then, just before nightfall, he would trudge back home, exhausted from his labor. One evening, the weather grew foul while he was returning from a remote village in the mountains. Clouds obscure, obscure the setting sun, and it became so dark the salt cellar could not see his way through the thicket. He was too tired to go on in the gloom and in the impending storm, so he began to look for shelter for the night. In the distance, he saw a pale shape rising against the night sky, a giant boulder. He made his way to it, hoping to find an overhang or a hollow underneath, since it had begun to rain, and he knew that it would soon be pouring. At the base of the giant rock, he spotted a small cave. It seemed large enough to hold him, so he put down his A-frame and crawled into the opening. Using what remained of his sack of salt as a pillow, he stretched himself out for the night. Soon his eyes grew heavy and he was on the verge of sleep, but just as he was about to drift off, he heard an eerie sound that made his hair stand on end. Wide awake with fear, he clamped his mouth shut to quiet his breath. Slowly, he looked about into the darkness, poking his head out of the, head out of the cave's mouth. When he could see nothing, he, when he could see nothing, the sound grew more distinct. It was that of a woman's soft voice. In fact, it was a human voice and it gave him some comfort. But then he wondered what a woman would be doing out at night in the mountains. His curiosity got the better of him, and he crawled out of his shelter to look around. He could not see a woman nor anything else in the darkness. He crawled back into the cave to sleep, and once again, as he began to drift off, he heard the voice. It was closer this time, coming from above. Once again, the salt cellar crawled quietly out of the cave. He looked upward to the top of the giant boulder to find the source of the voice, and what he saw caused his breath to stick in his throat. The rain had stopped and the clouds had dispersed. Even the dim light of the moon, he could see that it was a white female fox in a, with a long, slowy tail dangling from the boulder. It held something between its paws, also white, and it slowly ground the thing against the surface of the boulder while it mumbled to itself in a woman's voice. After a moment, the fox turned the round white thing, revealing two black holes in it, and the salt cellar realized it was a human skull. He was terrified by what he saw and could hardly get himself to move, but the salt cellar kept his wits about him and quietly crawled behind a tree where he could watch the fox without being seen. The white fox was grinding the skull against the boulder, turning it this way and that until she shaped it to her satisfaction. Then she placed the skull over her own, her own head and muttered to herself in annoyance. It did not fit well enough. The fox took the skull off and ground it some more and then tried it on again, then again, then again until she was happy with the fit and leapt into the air, pleased with herself. Though he trembled and his spine was chilled with fear, the salt cellar could not take his eyes off the fox. He watched as it flipped itself backwards, head over tail, once, twice, and suddenly there was no fox. An old woman stood before him, her back bent by a dowager's hump. She licked her fingers and smoothed down her white hair. I'm late, she said. They'll be getting impatient with me. She leaped down from the boulder and walked down the path towards the village, that the salt cellar had left earlier that evening. Now the salt cellar was curious, and despite his fear, he followed the old woman, often running to catch up because she walked so swiftly in the dark. When she reached the village, she went directly into the house of old Kim, the richest man in the valley. I'm here, the old woman called from the gate, and the house was suddenly abuzz. Servants ran out to open the gate and welcomed her in, asking her what had detained her. They seemed to be expecting her because they led her to the wife's guest room, which had obviously been prepared for her. As soon as the commotion died down, 
The salt seller went to the gate and asked if he could stay the night. He was a familiar face in the village, so the servants took him to the men's guest room. It was near midnight when the salt seller lay on the bed mat listening to the sounds issued from the woman's room across the courtyard. He heard only low voices, which he could not distinguish, and after a while everything was quiet. Suddenly there came a loud crashing, the loud crashing sound of a gong, and then a voice, unmistakably that of the old woman, chanting strange incantations. The voice would die down, then stop, and then the gong would strike again and began another round of chanting. The salt seller listened carefully, and he could make out some of the words. They were prayers to the Amida Buddha and the old man of the mountain, but they were accompanied by things they'd never heard before in all his days of traveling as a salt seller. Something terrible and evil was going on in that room, and he knew that he must do something to stop it. A servant came in to sleep just then, and the salt seller asked him what was going on. Is it an exorcism, he asked. The servant told him that old Kim was seriously ill. The local herbalists were useless for his mysterious condition, so they had called on the old grandmother, a local shamaness, who was known to be a good healer. Try to get some sleep, he said. This is likely to go on all night. And with that, he turned over and started snoring. As it was, the salt seller had feared. Nothing. Now everything was deathly quiet except for the faint rhythmic sound of the gong. It was as insidious as it was low, trembling at a terrible vibration. He could hardly keep his eyes open. Old Kim's family had probably fallen asleep, too. The salt seller mustered his will and stepped out of the guest room. He crept across the courtyard to the woman's room, where the old crone's chanting had died down to a low murmur. Quietly, he stepped onto the raised wooden floor and sat against the sliding door with his ear pressed to the paper panel. He could hear her clearly now. Though the rhythm seemed to be in a traditional invocation, the words were evil and twisted. Surely they cannot sleep through this, thought the salt seller. He wet his finger and gently poked a hole in the paper, being careful not to make a sound. He put his eye against the hole and peeked inside. They were all asleep, all except for the old foxwoman who sat with her eyes closed, chanting and rhythmically tapping the brass gong by the light of the single oil lamp. Dine, dine, the feast be mine. She licked her thin lips with her red tongue, as if she were in the body of an old woman. The salt could see that her teeth were unusually sharp, and her tongue was that of a fox. What was he to do? The salt seller knew that he could not let the family sleep through the murder of a master, and yet if he were to wake them now and tell them that the old one was a fox, they would hardly believe him. Fox demons were wily and cunning and clever with their tongues, and he was a simple man of a few words. The white fox had taken on the guise of respected old shamaness, and he was only a traveling salt seller. What was he to do? He could not witness such an evil and sit there and do nothing. As the murmuring of the low clangs of the gong continued, the salt seller felt a bleak, felt bleak hopelessness wash over him. It is not my business, he thought to himself. Just go back to sleep, go back to sleep. But just as he was about to step down on the courtyard and slink back to the guest room, he realized the fox was casting her spell over him, and suddenly was filled with a blind rage. Awake, cried the salt seller, awake! He leaped down from the wooden floor, and as the people in the household roused themselves from their thick sleep, he rang into the storage room and emerged with a heavy two-headed pestle. The servants tried to stop him, thinking he... He was a madman, but the salt seller pushed them aside and threw open the door to the room where the old crone sat, still chanting. She glared at him, trying to catch his eyes in her glance, but he lowered his gaze to the floor, and without a word, he smashed the head of the pestle against her skull. The people in the room rushed forward now, too late to restrain him, but then they drew back when they heard the strange barking sounds that issued from the old woman's throat. With each bark, she spat up a mouthful of blood, splashing dark red patches on the floor. In a moment, what lay on the floor was no longer an old woman, 
but a white fox wearing the cracked human skull. Old Kim's family looked on, dumbfounded, as the salt cellar bent down and removed the grisly mask from the fox's crushed head, and now he told them what he had seen that night in the mountain. The next morning, Old Kim had recovered as mysteriously as he had fallen ill. Out of his gratitude, he rewarded the salt cellar to a generous position of wealth. And so, the salt cellar lived out the rest of his life in happy days, no longer having to peddle salt in the mountains. And so that was a Korean folktale. Um, this version uh, was retold by Heinz in Sue Fenkel, and you can find it online. Um, this one was particularly chilling, and I have to say that I, I have a secret fondness. Okay, it's not so secret. I have a fondness for horror stories, and this is a perfect mix, in my opinion, of, like, mystical and, um, well, it's not completely logical, but seriously, like a fox wearing a human skull so it could transform into a human. But at the same time, um, stories like these I find are very inspirational because for lots of reasons, uh, not only because of the historical cultural reason, but the fact that people had a lot more imagination then. there were a lot less things that seemed impossible. And if you were to read them, you know, maybe not literally, but if you were to look into them, they have different symbolisms in there. For example, of like, you know, uh, the old woman casting the spell on the entire household, even putting the salt cellar to sleep. He was able to realize that somebody was trying to pull a fast one on him and was able to remedy the situation regardless of, you know, all all that was at risk. Like, he could lose his life for accusing this, this shamanist for um, trying to harm their master, but, you know, he took the risk anyway. So there's a lot of good lessons to be learned. Well, anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed the story. And stay tuned for OC's Asia Town Voice, and I hope you have a happy holiday. Bye-bye.